It might be a Tuesday, but it feels like a Monday because I'm Michael Walker and I'm joined tonight on Navarro Live by Ash Sarkar. Ash, are you feeling discombobulated? I really am feeling discombobulated, not just because I'm seeing, seeing you on a Tuesday, but because you seem to have hijacked my brain from earlier this morning. You're wearing the same t-shirt I was wearing this morning. And before we went live, you were humming the same song that I'd been singing all morning from first coffee to the shower to wandering around Tottenham. When a song gets implanted in your head, it's normally because it's appeared in some advert or some TV show we might have both watched. So if you know why uh, Mrs. Robinson by Simon and Garfunkel might be whirling around our heads, let us know in the comments. We also want to know your views on the stories we're talking about, which are Rishi Sunak traveling to Washington to speak about artificial intelligence. Prince Harry is in court. And we've got a really bizarre Newsnight segment for you on Jamie Driscoll, who I spoke to on last night's show, and Ken Loach. First, though, large parts of southern Ukraine are currently facing catastrophic flooding. That's after the wall of a dam in the Russian-occupied Kherson region was blown up, leading to evacuations and a state of emergency being declared. The collapse of the dam wall seems to have taken place over several days, and it has led to vast amounts of water pouring out of the giant reservoir above the dam and into the Dnipro River. Several miles downstream of the dam in the town of Novokova, flood water has reached up to 11 metres high. According to the town's Russian-installed mayor, around 600 houses are now underwater. The dam is a strategically important piece of civilian infrastructure. The water from the giant reservoir it creates is used to cool the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, and the dam itself is part of a hydroelectric power plant. But just as important for the war, the dam was traversed by one of the few roads connecting the southeast and the southwest of Ukraine. As you can see on this map, Russia currently occupies the region to the east of the river and Ukraine controls the land to its west. In the expected Ukrainian counterattack, they would have potentially used the road over the dam to try to retake parts of southeastern Ukraine. The collapse of the dam, of course, means that's no longer an option, at least by that particular route. And that is why many analysts think it's Russia which had the greatest motive to destroy the dam. Rob Lee is a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. That's a US think tank. He told the Financial Times this, Russia benefits from the front line being smaller because it is easier to concentrate forces to prevent a breakthrough. So if a Ukrainian operation in Kherson is less likely now, they might be able to move more forces east. So essentially by making it so that the Ukrainians can't cross that particular part of the Dnipro, they can concentrate their forces so that they can better repel um, a counterattack. Of course, we've been expecting this counterattack for, for months. Um, apparently, one of the reasons for waiting was so the land could dry out after the winter. So you can see why blowing up a dam might make some sense to slow it down. Um, President Zelensky, um, of course, um, has a strong idea as to who is to blame. Um, he posted this on social media. Russia has been controlling the dam and the entire Kachova region, um, or the Kachova HPP, for more than a year. It is physically impossible to blow it up somehow from the outside by shelling. It was mined by the Russian occupiers and they blew it up. Russia has detonated a bomb of massive environmental destruction. This is the largest man-made environmental disaster in Europe in decades. It is the most dangerous terrorist in the world. And that is why Russia's defeat, a defeat that will ensure anyway, so regardless of what they've done to the dam, will be the most significant contribution to the security of our region, our Europe, and the entire 
world. As you can imagine, the Russians disagree. Speaking to reporters, Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov said this, we can state unequivocally that we are talking about deliberate sabotage by the Ukrainian side. Apparently, this sabotage is also connected with the fact that having started large-scale offensive actions two days ago, now the Ukrainian armed forces are not achieving their goals. These offensive actions are faltering. We officially declare that here we are definitively or definitely talking about deliberate sabotage from the Ukrainian side. So the, the Russians saying their counterattack isn't going as well as they thought, so they've resorted to blowing up dams. Um, in support of the idea that Ukraine may have carried out this attack, some on social media have pointed out they did admit to considering damaging the dam earlier on in the war. So in December of last year, the Washington Post wrote this about a conversation they had with a senior Ukrainian general called Andriy Kovalchuk. Ukrainian Major General Kovalchuk considered flooding the river. The Ukrainians, he said, even conducted a test strike with a HIMARS launcher on one of the floodgates at the Novokachova Dam, making free holes in the metal to see if the Dnieper's water could be raised enough to stymie Russian crossings, but not flood nearby villages. So, so they, they did try blowing little holes in the dam. They wanted to raise the level of the river without flooding nearby villages. Of course, this explosion, um, if, this, if, if that is what happened, seems to have been less controlled because obviously the, the whole dam has collapsed, which is why these villages are now flooding. Um, uh, that's been shared. I mean, it's a very interesting bit of insight from the Washington Post. I'm not actually convinced that admission changes things right now, though. Of course, earlier on in the war, the Ukrainians were on the defensive and so would have wanted to make it harder for people to cross the Dnipro River because they didn't want the Russians to go from the east to the west. Now the Ukrainians are on the counterattack. They, they don't want it to be harder to cross that river because it's more likely that they'll be crossing the river than the Russians will. Again, this is speculation. Um, we don't have proof at this point. And of course, um, none of this means the Ukrainian side wouldn't resort to sabotage of key infrastructure, or perhaps more importantly, that if they did, the West wouldn't cover it up. Now, in a piece of interesting timing, I mean, coincidental by all accounts, the Washington Post published this report today. US had intelligence of detailed Ukrainian plan to attack Nord Stream pipeline. And this is part of the Discord leaks. It says the CIA learned last June via a European spy agency that a six-person team of Ukrainian special operations forces intended to sabotage the Russia to Germany natural gas project. I'm going to get a few quotes from that article today. So the Washington Post reports, three months before saboteurs bombed the Nord Stream natural gas pipeline, the Biden administration learned from a close ally that the Ukrainian military had planned a covert attack on the undersea network, using a small team of divers who reported directly to the commander-in-chief of the Ukrainian armed forces. Details about the plan, which have not been previously reported, were collected by a European intelligence service and shared with the CIA in June 2022. They provide some of the most specific evidence to date linking the government of Ukraine to the eventual attack in the Baltic Sea, which US and Western officials have called a brazen and dangerous act of sabotage on Europe's energy infrastructure. Now, this is very significant. We talked about the, the Nord Stream pipeline a bunch of times. Obviously, when it was first uh, sabotaged, um, all Western media said this was probably Russia even though it would have made no sense for it to be Russia because it's a piece of Russian infrastructure. Actually, Ukraine would have had a huge motive um, because they don't want Nord Stream to be ever turned back on because that allows Russia to transport gas to Europe, bypassing Ukraine. So most of the other pipes go through Ukraine. This bypassed it because it went through the sea. So Ukraine had a motive, but for some reason, um, the Western press decided to just blame 
Russia anyway. Um, then Seymour Hersh wrote an article saying it was the American military who organized it. Now, um, a bunch of other people have said actually it was the Ukrainians themselves. This Washington Post article, of course, now supporting the idea that it was the Ukrainians. So it, it has often happened um, in this war that the initial explanation we get doesn't turn out to be the right one. I should also say, though, that I think it is important to know that even if even if this was a bit of international terrorism by the Ukrainians, like if you are defending your country from a war of aggression, blowing up some international infrastructure, you know, I don't think it's morally wrong. I, I think it's problematic that the West is so quick to jump to an explanation which favors the West and blames Russia even when it's implausible. But, you know, if 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 they blew up the Nord Stream pipeline, you know, maybe maybe you would have done the same if you were being invaded, right? I mean, I wouldn't have the capacity or knowledge or know-how to do it, but you can see where I'm coming from. Finally, on this story, now you you might be worried because you you will have heard me say at the beginning of this section that the now destroyed dam, so the dam that's that's just been destroyed, um, was used to provide the water used to cool down the Zaporizhia power plant. Now, if you've seen uh, any documentaries about nuclear meltdown or the Chernobyl drama, you'll know that when uh, you can't cool down a nuclear power plant, you get into some real, real problems that can cause nuclear meltdown, which would mean that we would um, have radiation, not just in that region, but potentially sweeping across Europe. This is a very big um, nuclear power station. Um, but we shouldn't necessarily be at this point too worried. Um, of course, I'm not an expert on this, but let's go to Ukraine's state atomic agency. They said there is still enough water at the plant to keep it safe. And they posted this on social media. Right now, the station's cooling pond is full. As of 8 a.m., the water level is 16.6 meters, which is sufficient for the station's need. Currently, the situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is under control. Ukrainian personnel are monitoring all indicators. And you wouldn't expect, actually, the Ukrainian side to be underplaying the risk because they've often actually talked about, you know, we need to be real tough on Russia because they're um, putting the, the safety of this nuclear power plant under threat. They seem to be saying, actually, it's probably okay. Um, the International Atomic Energy Agency has itself um, confirmed that the power plant is currently safe. So let's keep our fingers crossed that we don't have a nuclear meltdown in Ukraine anytime soon, um, even though the destruction of that dam does seem to be pretty irresponsible on all counts. Of course, um, this latest event in the war in Ukraine um, takes place in the context of a long-awaited Ukrainian counterattack or counteroffensive to retake parts of Russian-held Ukraine. Um, not going to go into that in in more detail now. We'll, we'll get an expert on later in the week to talk in detail about what that all means, what might happen next. For now, though, on to another rather frightening topic. Rishi Sunak has jetted off to Washington and as is in vogue right now, he wants to talk to President Biden about artificial intelligence. The FT report that Sunak is to lobby President Biden to give the UK a leadership role in AI development. On the agenda is the possibility of a CERN for AI based in Britain. Now, I hadn't heard of a CERN, but the idea is to establish a large-scale research centre into the AI, or into AI, sorry, along the lines of the European Centre for Nuclear Research. That's what CERN means. That's currently in Geneva. Another topic they'll be discussing is setting up a regulatory body for artificial intelligence based on the International Atomic Energy Agency. Um, of course, AI has become a hot issue recently, in particular regulation of AI. 
AI. And last month, the CEOs and researchers, or a bunch of CEOs and researchers into AI, signed a one-sentence open letter calling for taking the risk of artificial intelligence very, very seriously. Um, it was a short letter. It said just this... Mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks such as pandemics and nuclear war. This is, you know, one of the things you can say about computer programmers and CEOs. They don't mind short sentences. I think if this was written by um, humanities graduates, they probably would have made it into a paragraph. So good for them for that. Um, should we be uncritical of them? We'll talk about that now. Um, signatories of that letter included the CEOs of Google's DeepMind, as well as Sam Altman. He's the CEO of OpenAI. Um, they're the company who created ChatGPT. So what will Sunak's message be to Biden when he corners him on AI regulation? Well, we haven't heard much from the Prime Minister himself on this topic, but his top advisor on AI has been speaking to Talk TV. Now, Matt Clifford heads up ARIA. It's the UK's advanced research and invention agency. I think there's lots of different types of risks with AI. And often in the industry, we talk about near-term and long-term risks. And, you know, the near-term risks are actually pretty scary. You know, you can use AI today to uh, give you recipes for bioweapons or mm. to launch large-scale cyber attacks. And, you know, these are bad things. The kind of existential risk that, that I think the letter writers were talking about is, is exactly as you say. They're talking about what happens once uh, we effectively create a new species, you know, a sort of an intelligence yeah. that's greater than humans. And... Is that inevitable in that computers are learning at this exponential rate or are we able to stop them from becoming clever enough forever? It's certainly not inevitable. I mean, we, we, we don't know that we're able to do it. However, you know, the reason that people are starting to get worried and the reason that you know, even the people making, uh, making these uh, systems, the people that signed the letter, mm. is that the rate of progress that we've seen over the last two or three years has been pretty striking. And so I think one way to think about this is imagine the January 2020 moment in COVID. You know, it's sort of very tempting to say, oh, you know, the number of cases isn't going up that much. And that's because we're, you know, we're not used to thinking about these exponentials. Yeah. I think what the signers of that letter are saying is we're on an exponential. Like these systems are getting more and more capable mm. at an ever increasing rate. And if we don't start to think about now how to regulate and how to think about safety, mm. then in two years time, we'll be finding that we have systems that are very powerful indeed. So the letter that AI advisor was referring to was the one sentence one we just read you, which means that the leaders of the AI industry and policymakers seem to be in agreement more regulation is needed. But what form would that take? Sam Altman spoke at a congressional hearing on AI safety last month. Remember, he's the CEO of OpenAI. And in that hearing, Senator John Kennedy asked him how he'd regulate the emerging technology. Mr. Altman, here's your shot. Thank you, Senator. Uh, number one, I would form a new agency that licenses any effort above a certain scale of capabilities and could take that license away and ensure compliance with safety standards. Number two, I would create a set of safety standards focused on what you said in your third hypothesis as the dangerous capability evaluations. One example that we've used in the past is looking to see if a model can self-replicate and self-exfiltrate into the wild. We can give your office a long other list of the things that we think are important there, but specific tests that a model has to pass before it can be deployed into the world. And then third, uh, I would require independent audits, so not just from the company or the agency, but experts who can say the model is or isn't in compliance with these stated safety thresholds and these percentages of performance on question X or Y. Can you send me that information? We will do that. Um, would you be qualified to... Uh, to, to uh, if we promulgated those rules, to administer those rules? I love my current job. 
Cool. Are there people out there that would be qualified? We'd be happy to send you recommendations for people out there, yes. Okay. Can you find me a regulator to regulate your own industry, please? Uh, it's not a question from a senator that inspires too much confidence that these guys are in control of what they're doing, these guys um, in this situation being the politicians. And I think it is also worth noting, however thoughtful Sam Altman may sound, and I think he is, it's a really interesting interview on, on the Ezra Klein and podcast a few months ago. Clever guy, but he isn't necessarily a neutral player um, when it comes to regulating artificial intelligence for the common good. And when Altman traveled to Europe a few days after that hearing in Congress, he spoke out against the EU's planned AI Act. And the FT reported this. Altman said he had many concerns about the EU's planned AI Act, which is due to be finalized next year. In particular, he pointed to the European Parliament's move this month to expand its proposed regulations to include the latest wave of general purpose AI technology including large language models, such as OpenAI's GPT-4. The details really matter, Altman said. We will try to comply, but if we can't comply, we will cease operating. So no more Mr. Nice Guy there. That led to a backlash from EU parliamentarians accusing the CEO of attempting to blackmail the bloc into weakening its regulatory framework. Marietje Scharker is a former Dutch MEP who now heads up the cyber policy unit at Stanford University. Writing in the FT, she said this, Imagine the chief executive of JP Morgan explaining to Congress that because financial products are too complex for lawmakers to understand, banks should decide for themselves how to prevent money laundering, enable fraud detection, and set liquidity to loan ratios. He would be laughed out of the room. Angry constituents would point out how well self-regulation panned out in the global financial crisis. From big tobacco to big oil, we haven't learned the hard way that businesses cannot set disinterested regulations. They are neither independent nor capable of creating countervailing powers to their own. The counterpoint here might be that while you can't let an industry self-regulate if it will only harm other people, so if, if you're a boss and you won't be affected by the damage done, um, perhaps then you need to regulate them. But maybe um, if the industry going awry would harm the CEOs themselves, maybe then you can leave it to them because obviously the damage they cause will also affect them. And given we're told the big risk of AI is human extinction, maybe Sam Altman et al. will have a genuine interest in keeping us all safe because if it all goes wrong, um, they will also suffer. However, Sharka thinks that logic might be mistaken. This is from the FT again. Within industry circles, the calls for AI regulation have verged on apocalyptic. Scientists warn that their creations are too powerful and could go rogue. A recent letter signed by Altman and others warned that AI posed a threat to humanity's survival akin to nuclear war. You would think these fears would spur executives into action, but despite signing, virtually none have modified their own behavior. Perhaps their framing of how we think of guardrails around AI is the actual goal. Our ability to navigate questions about the type of regulation needed is also heavily influenced by our understanding of the technology itself. She goes on to write, The statements have focused attention on AI's existential risk, but critics argue that prioritizing the prevention of this down the line overshadows the much-needed work against discrimination and bias that should be happening today. Warnings about the catastrophic risks of AI, supported by the very people who could stop pushing their products into society, are disorienting. The open letters make signatories seem powerless in their desperate appeals, but those sounding the alarm already have the power to slow or pause the potentially dangerous progression of artificial intelligence. Asked about AI regulation, Sunak's advisor Matt Clifford seemed to fall into exactly that line of thinking Sharka is warning against. 
I guess the problem with regulation, and also must worry, your task was trying to get the best out of AI for Britain after all, is there's a danger, isn't there, of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Same with all regulation. If you regulate, it makes people feel safe. If you overregulate, suddenly we're less competitive. China, the EU, whoever it is, is going to overtake us and they could become dominant, not us. I think we need to draw a distinction between two very different types of AI systems. We have what I would call narrow AI, which is where you're solving a very specific single problem, and then general AI, which is the type we've been talking about, where you're trying to build, I mean, it's not a great metaphor, but you're trying to build a brain. And I actually do worry that there's a risk, not in the UK, but you know, elsewhere, certainly in the EU, that we overregulate narrow AI. I want it to be that you can go to the hospital and yes, have a human radiologist, but with an AI co-pilot mm. who is really good at detecting cancers that the radiologist might mm. miss. I think it would be a real disaster to regulate that into oblivion and make that, that those benefits not possible. I think the general AI systems that we're talking about though, um, it really is about balancing the, the, the risks and the opportunities. I mean, I think AGI, general AI done right, will be the best thing, the yeah. best technological breakthrough the species, our species has ever made. But I do think, you know, Every country in the world has an interest in that being safe. And I think yeah. that's the distinction I would draw. Let's really let innovators in narrow AI go to the races, but be quite cautious about the general AI. So the distinction there, let's, let's regulate um, against extinction-level events, but everything else we can be fairly relaxed about because the benefits will probably be huge. Save the CEOs, but fuck the workers is basically the model of regulation which is being proposed here. Because, of course... The emergence of a supreme intelligence, which is capable of hoarding power, locking out humans from systems that we rely on, um, making decisions which don't have any form of human input or have very limited human input, that is something that's really dangerous. But what we're looking at in terms of the the implementation of what's being called narrow AI will have massive impacts on the labor market. And that is something that the AI CEOs and also, unfortunately, our government are remarkably relaxed about. It was only in April that Jeremy Hunt, Chancellor of the Exchequer, was saying he simply doesn't buy the argument that AI could cause job losses. But that's very different from what Sam Altman is saying. He's saying customer service jobs could be wiped out relatively soon. When you're looking at this kind of class of what I would call the white collar precariat, so not necessarily in blue collar manual working class jobs, but are in relatively precarious white collar office jobs, that is exactly the kind of people who could find their jobs being automated really quickly. So I'm talking about data entry, I'm talking about auditing, I'm talking about certain forms of accounting, I'm talking about even paralegal services. Um, one of the things which is going on at the moment is a wave of layoffs in tech. Now, in part, that's because of a decreasing demand due to an inflationary crisis across the global north and many other countries as well. It's also to do with the end of the era of really cheap credit. But another aspect of it is that when you can see AI coming down the line and you're seeing the exponential rate of improvement and power in that AI, you're starting to look at many of those jobs in tech and you're going, okay, well, I can see that this job might not exist in a year's time. So one of the things which I think is entirely possible, even if you don't have the emergence of that doomsday lights out scenario is that a massive chunk 
of the labour market is just going to get knocked out of the economy. And of course, job losses of that scale don't just affect the people who are employed in that particular sector. So let's say me, little miss data entry, loses her job and can't get another job in that same area because it's all being automated. Well, that has an impact on me being able to pay my bills. That has an impact on me being able to keep a roof over my head. That has an impact on my spending, both on necessities and luxuries. And if that's something which is happening at a scale of, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people in a given country, well, that will have a knock-on effect on pretty much every other kind of commercial activity that you can imagine, all while profit is being hoarded by these AI companies who are able to do huge amounts of work that would otherwise be done by humans or without having to offer a wage in order to get it done. Now, that's something which Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak are currently shrugging their shoulders about. What's interesting about Sam Altman as an individual is that that is something he's thinking about, although his answer to it is this kind of bastard hybrid between capitalism and, you know, little bit socialism. So he goes, okay, well, there's going to be massive job losses. So what do you do? Is his solution, you should tax the fuck out of AI companies? Well, obviously not. He's saying American Mm -hmm. workers should be given uh, shares in AI companies. Now, that's great if the AI company is on the up, but if a particular AI company is, you know, as a result of mismanagement or a new kind of replacement technology, you know, if what happens to uh, OpenAI is, you know, a bit like what happened to MySpace when Facebook comes along, well, then those shares will become worthless and those many of those American workers will have just lost their jobs anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think that that's a solution. But it's interesting to me that when it comes to that scale of transformation to the labor market, which sure might not be a lights out doomsday scenario, but will mean the obliteration of people's livelihoods, that our politicians are recklessly complacent. And I think that that's a picture across lots of different policy areas. I think it's something which is particularly acute with AI because also they don't understand it. Um, But that's been the case with climate change. That's been the case with demographic aging. Um, That's been the case with the deterioration of our public services due to rentierism, which is you've got politicians who are responding to, I think, a really narrow set of incentives, the concerns of a narrow band of swing voter whose political priorities are shaped by right-wing press and also the value of their properties. And it means that they don't really have to deal with these kind of, you know, capital I issues, which are glaring down at humanity as an entire species. They're able to go, well, you know what, Workington man or Welland Garden city woman or whoever it is that's been cooked up by, you know, this particular focus group doesn't care about it. So I don't have to know much about it. And I don't have to really do anything about it either. Um, I think that what AI sheds a light on is just how warped that set of incentives really are. And that's why you've got the spectacle of 
AI CEOs begging for regulation, yes, but being able to quite narrowly frame the parameters of what that regulation might look like and everyone just nodding along like, you know, a set of, you know, cavalier King Charles Spaniels just like, oh, yeah, no, that sounds good. Sam Altman, you're, you're a neutral interlocutor. I think I'll trust what you say. But I suppose in defense of Sam Altman, though, so if, if, if our concern is job losses... Is that an issue for regulation? Because that's almost kind of like a Luddite argument, isn't it? So let's slow down the technology so people can keep their jobs. Now, you know, like how economic progress tends to happen is that you you allow people's jobs to get taken, but then you make sure that new jobs appear or you you make sure there's some redistribution of, of wealth so you have sort of a strong welfare state that can support people if they do lose those jobs. Now, his idea of sort of like saying, let's all have shares in AI, I hadn't actually heard that one. Maybe, maybe he said that on the podcast I listened to and I wasn't concentrating at that particular moment. But... I suppose in response to what you said there, again, he might say, well, you've said, what's the point in giving the public, or not what's the point, but the, the downside of giving the public shares in AI companies is what if those companies collapse like MySpace? Well, if they collapse like MySpace, then the, the problem doesn't exist, right? Because if, if if the companies aren't a success, then there's no problem to solve. If, if if they are a success, then we get some of the shares of it. So it seems kind of, maybe I'm an Altmanite, Ash. No, maybe you're an Altmanite, but no, the point I'm making is that you can have wave one of AI, which results in massive job losses, and then wave two comes along and makes the companies who drove that first wave worthless. Well, your job is still gone. And on top of that, the shares that you got, which were supposed to you know, sustain you economically and financially, well, they're worthless too. So that's the point I'm making, number one. I think you raise a good point about, you know, is this potentially a Luddite argument? But when you've got a massive pace of change and you've also got no redistribution, no welfare state, no sense of, okay, how are we going to, you know, catch and hold these workers? That's a really, really bad thing. That's a really, really bad thing. Um, you know, you can you can see it in terms of the way in which driverless trains are used as a disciplining tool against RMT and ASLEF membership. The threat of automation, I think, is something which does have an impact on trying to force workers into accepting worse pay, worse conditions, and greater insecurity in their contracts. Now, that is something which I think you can regulate. Not necessarily that's to do with the AI companies directly, but in terms of how employers use AI, certainly. That makes sense in terms of you know another business coming along and you know being more profitable than the first wave of AI companies, which is why. I suppose having very highly progressive tax is is a better option because that means that whoever, whichever companies end up being the successful ones, we can you know tax them highly and, and, and redistribute the wealth. Of course, there are certain sectors where having sort of communal shares is amazing. So like the, the Norwegian uh, Sovereign Wealth Fund, which is in their, their North Sea Oil, which they did, you know, in our country, what Thatcher used the receipts from North Sea Oil to do was to fund tax cuts for the rich. In Norway, what they did was they kept that oil in in common ownership and now they have a trillion dollar sovereign wealth fund which is you know collectively owned by the citizens of of Norway so in in that kind of situation it works very well but i suppose it, you know you can't really outcompete an oil company oil is oil uh you know we can say retrospectively ideally they would have kept it in the ground but if you're going to take it out we did as well it's better to to put those those earnings into a sovereign wealth fund than just um piss it away in taxes on tax cuts sorry for the rich next story Prince Harry has appeared in court, the first royal to do so in 130 years. 
Harry is giving evidence in a case against Reach, formerly known as the Mirror Group Newspapers, the publisher of the Mirror and the Sunday Mirror. Harry has accused the company of publishing 147 articles between 1996 and 2010 that contain information gained by unlawful means. Those means, it's alleged, include phone hacking, acquiring information by deception and the use of private investigators. The case will examine 33 of those articles. Reach has denied the allegations for 28 of them, while the remaining five are not admitted. Things got off to a blistering start in the proceedings when Harry's 55-page witness statement was released to the public. The claims he made in that document formed the basis for his cross-examination by lawyers for the publisher when he took the stand. And some parts are pretty remarkable, including this unprecedented swipe at the government. Our country is judged globally by the state of our press and our government, both of which I believe are at rock bottom. Democracy fails when your press fails to scrutinize and hold the government accountable and instead choose to get into bed with them so they can ensure the status quo. And now I assume the royals are pleased this guy is no longer a working royal because this would be a bit of a constitutional crisis um, if he were. Um, There were some other interesting details in that statement. Here's his account of why he's taking this action against the Mirror newspaper group. The fact that it was not just the journalists who were carrying out the unlawful activity, but also those in power who were turning a blind eye to it so as to ensure that it would continue unabated and who then tried to cover it up when the game was up is appalling. The fact they're all ganging up to protect each other is the most disturbing part of it all, especially as they're the mothership of online trolling. Trolls react and mobilize to stories they create. People have died as a result and people will continue to kill themselves by suicide when they can't see any other way out. How much more blood will stay in their typing fingers before someone can put a stop to this madness? It's not holding back there. He also went into what it was like to be a teenager, hounded by the tabloids. So he says, in my experience as a member of the royal family, each of us gets cast into a specific role by the tabloid press. You start off as a blank canvas while they work out what kind of person you are and what kind of problems and temptations you might have. They then start to edge you towards playing the role or roles that suit them best and which sell as many papers as possible, especially if you are the spare to the heir. Especially if you are the spare. This doesn't apply to anyone else other than you, don't really, does it? But um, You're then either the playboy prince, the failure, the dropout, or in my case, the fico, the cheat, the underage drinker, the irresponsible drug taker. The list goes on. As a teenager and in my early 20s, I ended up feeling as though I was playing up to a lot of the headlines and stereotypes, mainly because I thought that if they are printing this rubbish about me and people were believing it, I may as well do the crime. It was a downward spiral, whereby the tabloids would constantly try and coax me into doing something stupid and would make a good story and sell lots of newspapers. Looking back, such behavior on their part is utterly vile. Ash, solidarity with spares everywhere. Not everyone can be an heir. Some of us are mere spares. Uh, whenever these stories come up, I sort of struggle to work out who I have less sympathy with. I mean, should I care? Should I care what's going on here, Ash? Critical but unconditional support for Comrade Windsor, say I. <laughs> um, I mean, to be to be serious, I think that one of the things about Prince Harry is that he does have a very compelling narrative. And it is one which I think comes from the heart. And it's saying, I was born into a contractual arrangement between a family which did not love me and the most hideous institutions of, you know, tabloid press intrusion, right? I was born into that. I never had a chance to find out who I was without it. My every waking moment from 
my earliest memory was defined by the flash of a paparazzi bulb, um, stories which had some basis in truth, many stories which had no basis in truth. And I watched that, that kind of scrutiny destroy the people who I love the most, most notably his mother. Now, that is something which is true. I think it is an undeniable fact that that is his experience. But the problem he's run into today in the witness box is that that's not necessarily cut and dry proof that the mirror obtained stories about his personal life by unlawful means, because that's what this lawsuit is about. It's about, did the mirror... um, use phone hacking in order to obtain these stories. And you, what was really interesting about um, about Prince Harry is that he wanted to return to, I think, many of these very emotive talking points from his witness statements about what it was like to be him growing up. But what the Mirror's defense was putting pressure on is, but hang on, you're saying that your upbringing was ruined by this general picture of press intrusion, but your lawyers have selected something like 127 articles by the mirror. And you can't remember if you read them. You can't remember if you read them at the time. You can't remember if the people around you read these particular stories. And you can't necessarily prove that these individual stories had the kind of impact on your life that you're talking about. And furthermore, there's an awful lot of contestation about where some of these details may have come from. So very often in these kinds of royal stories, you'll have source quotes attributed to an insider or a friend or a pal. And what the mirror are trying to argue is that they had legitimate sources. There were people who were close to the prince, close to the royal family who were feeding them these stories. Prince Harry is maintaining, no, no, no. These individuals would never have done that. It has to have come from voicemails. Now, there's a really interesting thing which popped up in the court today, which is Prince Harry saying that there was a particular story which appeared in the mirror in which uh, Paul Burrell, the former butler, I think, to Princess Diana, was referred to as a two-faced little shit. And what's interesting is that this is a moment where he goes, that probably came from a voicemail that I left to my brother. So... In a way, in terms of the case and the direction of this case, which involves not just Prince Harry, of course, it also involves the likes of Doreen Lawrence, the mother of murdered teenager Stephen Lawrence, who alleged that there were victims of phone hacking by the Mirror, is that that's something which is directly relevant to the case. Whereas this other stuff, which I think is compelling, um, isn't, isn't necessarily because he's talking about how he felt to be a prince. That isn't smoking gun as to whether the mirror obtained stories unlawfully. I think the last thing that I want to say is that, of course, it is an inhuman institution. The royal family, I think, is an inhuman institution. It turns some of the most loving and nurturing relationships into ones of competition, suspicion, hierarchy. And I think it poisons, I think, some of the most sacred bonds of family that exist. That's why, even if it wasn't deeply unequal society based on you know the hereditary transfer of power unearned and frankly often looted wealth even if it wasn't all of those things I would be like get rid of it for the good of the individuals at the center of it Harry however wants it both ways he still wants his title 
He still wants his prominence, a prominence which I'm afraid is wholly unearned. Anything that he's done, his philanthropic activities, emerges from the central injustice, which is the position he was born into. And on the one hand, he says, this was a contract that I basically entered into without my consent, but he still wants all the good stuff. He wants less press intrusion, totally fair, but he doesn't want to get rid of the title. And that, for me, is where my sympathy absolutely stops, which is if you are really about it, if you're really about these values of equality and justice and diversity, all the things you pay lip service to in a Netflix documentary, give up the titles. Give up the titles. That's the challenge for you, Harry, if you're so goddamn honourable. A real spare would give up the title. As you can probably tell, I haven't been following this story as closely as some of the other stories we're talking about tonight. Although I, I, I just defer to Ash when it comes to stories on the royals and the British press. So um, I'm, 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 I'm very happy you're here and I'm not going to push back at all. What I am going to show you, though, is one of the weirdest things we've seen connected to this case. It's from Sky News. And um, of course, cameras haven't been allowed in the court. We don't do that in this country. Um, so we don't have any recordings of Harry's testimony. No problem, though, said Sky. And they gave us this. I believe that, again... As a child, every single one of these articles played an important role, a destructive role uh, in my growing up. To give any confirmation that I can specifically remember reading the articles at the time, I believe would be speculation. Yes, as you said, more than thousands, maybe millions of articles have been written about me since age 12. Yes, because again, because it's 20 years ago, I simply cannot speculate how it was and whether I saw these articles at the time. I certainly saw lots of articles at the time. Uh, the ones I was made aware of because of the behaviour and reaction of people in my inner circle. Unfortunately, stories that, you've only, that I've only shared with one or two people within my inner circle ends up front page of newspaper or any page your circle of friends starts to shrink and diminish rather rapidly. That was fucking bizarre. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> why they thought that that would add an aura of gravitas. And I kind of see this at the moment um, with these like really bizarre TV decisions where they go, okay, this is going to lend it an aura of real seriousness and I think communicate something to the viewer that, you know, we're not in cloud cuckoo land. And I would rank like this guy who doesn't even look like Prince Harry at all. Like, God love him. It was a it was a phenomenally performed piece. I thought there was a lot of pathos and a lot of emotion in there. The, <laughs> the Daniel Day-Lewis of Sky News, I believe they call him. But it's kind of up there with Holly Willoughby being like, oh, deep breath. First of all, are you okay? Like, what the fuck? Who came up with these decisions? It's like they've never met a human being before and don't understand that when you watch that on TV, you're like, this is inherently silly. Final story. On Monday's show, we interviewed Jamie Driscoll. He's the Labour Mayor of North Tyne, who's been blocked for restanding for his position because, can you believe it, he had a conversation with two-time Palm Door winner Ken Loach. Um, now, our interview was a very interesting chat. He's a very articulate guy. Um, but after speaking to us, he went on BBC Newsnight, where everything was a bit more unhinged. Victoria Derbyshire is hosting here, and Jamie is up against a Starmer backer called Paul Richards. 
no one's entitled to this candidature. And if there are better candidates, then those are the ones that the members in the Northeast will select to do this job. You know, if I was offered an opportunity to stand on a platform with Ken Loach, I wouldn't chat to him about movies. I would challenge him on some of the odious and repulsive things he has said. Did you do that, Jamie Driscoll? Over the last 25 years. Did I talk to, yeah, I was talking to Ken Loach about film. You no, 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 no. Did you challenge him on some of his views? No, again, I reject the premise of this. You don't turn up to a cultural event and then start talking about something you weren't invited to talk about. Why not? Why not? Well, well, exactly what are we talking about here? Are we talking? If, if someone wants to say Ken Lynch is anti-Semitic, they should come out and say it and stop all these briefings. But I want to challenge Paul's criteria there about being good at the job. I am a sitting Metro mayor. If I'm not good enough to be a sitting Metro mayor, why has the Labour Party not taken disciplinary action? This is going to damage Labour. He's raising the, the argument there about, I haven't met the threshold. There is no published threshold. This it's a different is, job, Jamie. Jamie, it's not no, the job you're doing now. It's a totally it's different job with a much job. bigger constituency. No, no, Paul, look, I know a lot more about the North East than you do. I'm doing this job now, mate. And I'm widely respected cross-party. I'll tell you what, Gateshead Labour Group tonight has refused to nominate on the basis of the way I've been treated. Independents have put in motions to councils. You sound like David Brent. You sound like David Brent somehow entitled to do the job. You know, this lot behind me, well, they'll no, back no, me no matter what. Um, the rules are there for everyone, aren't they, Jamie? For no, everybody, no, 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 even no. you. Even no. you should obey the right. rules. No. You are showing a total disregard. If you think, believe in democracy, why not let the members make that decision? I'm not asking to be slotted into the job. I'm asking to be allowed to put my case to You've members. You've been treated so no differently from any other Labour candidate. Every other Labour candidate is asked the question, is there anything there that's going to allow our opponents to beat us up right. in an election? And you've no. not apologised for it. You've admitted you did it. It's against the rules and you know that. And now you're pretending that you've been treated differently which, from anybody else. Which rule says you can't talk to a filmmaker about film? You're making that up, mate. You're making it up as you go along. He was making it up as he go along. There, there is no rule that you can't have a conversation with Ken Loach about films. Um, what I found more frustrating than that terrible guest, I had no idea who he was. Um, very unpleasant, he came across to me. Um, but what stuck out to me more was Victoria Derbyshire, who's the host of that show, because she said, did you challenge Ken Loach? You know, you're speaking to Ken. Did you challenge him? Did you challenge him? On what? His opinions on anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. Is Ken Loach now someone who cannot appear anywhere without being challenged on his opinions on anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. Now, I would say no. Um, yeah, that, that shouldn't be something which is a required topic of conversation when you speak to two-time Palm Door winner Ken Loach. And ironically, on the same day that Jamie Driscoll was challenged in that way, um, I got this podcast delivered to my podcast app. Now, it's called In the Studio, Ken Loach. And it was actually a pretty lovely profile of the guy. The host pointed out that Loach was one of the few directors to have won the top prize at Cannes twice. And they talked about his decision to set his last three films in the Northeast. That's a BBC podcast. Um, the last of his films is about Syrian refugees in County Durham. Guess what they didn't talk about on this half an hour podcast? Anti-Semitism. Now, also on Monday and also on BBC, this time on BBC North. East, they featured a profile of Ken Loach. Now, we're going to show you the entire three and a half minute report, and you can watch out for that moment on this bit of output where the BBC challenged the incredibly controversial director on his thoughts on anti Semitism. Ken Loach, who turns 87 this month, has been coming here since the 1970s and has been invited back to show his latest feature. 
How important was it for you to be able to bring the old oak to Cannes? The Cannes Festival is the biggest event in world cinema, I think. As a place to launch a film, it, nothing compares to it. Because people come from all over the world, people write about it from all over the world. There's, there's no other way of getting that attention. Cannes is unique. How's your French, Dave? Do you want to order? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it goes as far as munch tout. I mean, that's about it. No. Eagle-eyed film fans may recognise Dave Turner from a couple of very brief appearances in Ken Loach's last two films, I, Daniel Blake and Sorry We Missed You, both of which were set on Tyneside. So how do you go from being a firefighter to a leading man in a Ken Loach film? Genuinely lucky. I'm, I'm so lucky. It, it, I mean, to be... In a Ken Loach film itself is an incredible honour and a privilege. Um, but for it to be filmed in the northeast, not far from where I've spent most of my life, was incredible. He plays the landlord of a pit village pub in East Durham, which becomes contested territory after the arrival of Syrian refugees in the area. There was a lot of people fought for a long time for this film to be made. So to get a film made on this subject, about a community which has people coming from another culture into it is very important. I'm, I'm proud of the film and I'm proud of the, the people in it. For you, how the house, how are you doing? Also starring in the film is Claire Rogerson, a community organiser from Sunderland. You're not an actor, are you? No. I wanted to be part of this film because the story is important, part of an anti-racist story that also centres the experiences of post-industrial places that have just been totally left behind. At least some people are trying to find spaces of hope. My character is, my character is not too dissimilar from me. So was I even acting? I don't know. <laughs> and it's that authenticity that's brought Ken and his long-term collaborator, Paul Laverty, back to the region time and time again. We've just can't believe our, our luck with the, with the North East. And we've just met great people, had great support, you know, and you're nourished by the people who live there, obviously. You know, we show, that, we, we show these communities, you know, it's on screen, it's that accent, it's that rhythm of language. And uh, so it's been a really marvellous way to end the third film. Everyone contributed, you know, the people you see on screen, the people on the camera, the people who recorded it, the design, everyone. Brilliant experience. But how well we succeeded, I don't know yet. We'll soon find out. We'll soon, well, yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, back on the Quasette, Dave enjoys his last day of anonymity. Is the red carpet very soon, the big premiere? How are you feeling about that? Yeah, I'm okay at the moment. Must just be the ice cream, but... Um... Um, I'm using this like a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good show. Cheers. Thank you very much. Cheers now. Oh, lovely. But I should say, we've had a problem bringing you everybody's names and the little straps on your screen tonight. Sorry about that. Tomorrow, though, we will bring you, equipment allowing, the second report from Sharuna from Cannes, where she finds out how the film was received. Presumably it's in that second, I'm sure it's in that second package where the BBC challenged this vicious apologist for anti-Semitism instead of just doing a fawning profile of quite a good filmmaker. And when it comes up to it, I should say, though, oh, we accidentally did this profile of a, of a raging... Ash, the, uh, those two clips were from the BBC on the same day.
So BBC Northeast, this fawning profile of a very well-received British filmmaker in the evening, how dare you talk to this man about films without challenging him on his opinions on the disciplinary process within the Labour Party? Again, remember, this is a mayor of the Northeast. These are films which are all um, about that area. That's why it was appearing on BBC Northeast. So it seems very appropriate, actually, for Jamie Driscoll to talk to his guy. I mean, why are left-wing politicians held to a completely different standard to everyone else? Number one, the way in which Jamie Driscoll has been treated has some real echoes of what happened to Rebecca Long-Bailey, which is there is no real reason to knock him off his perch, stop him running again as mayor. There was no real reason to fire Becky Long-Bailey from the shadow cabinet. But the accusation of anti-Semitism or being insufficiently tough about someone else's alleged anti-Semitism is seen as a watertight reason to do something which I think everyone can agree is undemocratic, unfair, and quite nakedly factional. And that's because the anti-Semitism crisis in Labour has been, I think, almost canonized in the press to an extent that you can't question any aspect of it. You can't say, well, hang on, how much of this is rooted in reality? Is it anti-Semitic that Maxine Peake thought that the Israeli police forces had taught the knee-on-the-neck technique to American police forces when Israeli police forces have offered training to American police forces and both police forces use the, have used the knee-on-the-neck technique? You know, you could just say, oh, that's just kind of an understandable, you know, little leap of logic of the kind that we all do, particularly when you're not a professional politician or somebody who works specifically in that area. No, 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 no. It has to be the most malevolent and disgusting form of racism because then that allows you to do the thing that you already wanted to do, which is drum a left-wing politician out of a position of prominence. And the same stuff is happening with Ken Loach here. And I think the way in which it's being discussed on Newsnight shows you just how far removed political media has become from reality when they're discussing anti-Semitism. Because Ken Loach still is one of the single greatest filmmakers that this country has ever produced. Maxine Peake is one of the finest acting talents that this country has ever produced. But because they're known to be on the left, because they are known to be really vocal in their support of Jeremy Corbyn, and because the accusation of anti-Semitism doesn't have to be, does this person think this thing? Has this person said this thing? It's, can something they've done or said or implied be morphed into evidence of concealing anti-Semitic sentiments in their heart, when that becomes the standard, well, that can happen to absolutely anybody. It can happen to absolutely anybody because the story in the media is already written. It's left-wing, anti-Semitic, left-wing politician too soft on it. And so the minute you assemble the necessary ingredients, that's a story that's going to run and run. And it doesn't matter that it doesn't have a basis in truth. It doesn't matter that it doesn't even line up to the rest of how these individuals are understood 
right, what, what their social and cultural reality has been thus far. Political media will take it and they'll run with it and they don't care whether it's rooted in reality or not. And I think that that's one of the most disgusting things about, about the way in which the anti-Semitism crisis has played out, which is it's not simply about politics, right? Which is, okay, like you do what you have to do in order to get your political project over the line. It's not about the truth, which is obviously Keir Starmer wants to rid his party of the left. He's ideologically and strategically committed to doing that. Instead, it's about lying to people and lying to people about something really serious, lying to people in a way which makes them feel afraid if you're part of the Jewish community, lying to people in a way which makes them feel hopeless and politically abandoned if you're somebody who maybe you didn't even support Jeremy Corbyn as an individual, but those were policies that you needed and you felt inspired by. And it's poisoning the climate of political discourse. The presence of any lie in politics toxifies and poisons it for everybody. The media coverage of this is pretty divorced from reality. They're also being fed by political actors who are incredibly divorced from reality. Luke Akehurst um, sits on the Labour NEC, one of the most influential members, also director of We Believe in Israel, a think tank. Um, he tweeted this, we can only speculate about why he, being Driscoll, thought the Loach appearance was a good idea. A cynic might think it was intended as a dog whistle to mobilise members to vote in the selection who find Loach's stance on Jewish issues appealing. A cynic might think that. A remotely normal person would think that this is because he is a mayor in the Northeast. Ken Loach is one of the most preeminent directors in the country and his last three films were produced in the Northeast. And a cultural arts institution asked him to have a conversation with Ken Loach. Like, Ash, what planet do you have to be living on to think that what Jamie Driscoll was doing there was a dog whistle to appeal to the inherent anti-Semitism of Labour's membership base instead of talking to one of Britain's most famous film directors about films which were filmed in his patch? I mean, Michael, I don't know, genuinely, should I laugh at this or should I be really pissed off about it? Because the truth is, is that when it comes to the Labour right, they are as conspiratorial as they accuse the left of being, if not more. So, ooh, is it Occam's razor, the simplest explanation, or is it this one which I've cooked up in my head in which everyone is a malevolent, moustache-twirling villain apart from me? I'm going to go with the latter because it's something which makes me feel important and like I'm crusading on the side of the angels. I mean, another really conspiratorial thing was a tweet by Paul Richards, who you saw on Newsnight just earlier, when he accused Jeremy Corbyn's spokesperson of lying about the fact that Jeremy Corbyn goes running. Now, that's insane. That's cooked. That's tapped. But this is how these individuals really think. They really think that people who are on the left aren't simply legitimate political actors who have a different stance on a range of political issues to them. They think that their, their opponents are actually evil incarnate, that there's no shred of decency or honesty or authenticity in them. And it's just. What a weird way to interact with the world. Imagine if that's how you thought about people's intentions all the time. It would make you, I think, deeply maladjusted. 
you know, on a personal level, maladjusted and weird. Let's wrap up there. Ash, it's been such a pleasure being joined by you on this Tuesday evening. I really hope you weren't thinking to yourself, pot calling the kettle maladjusted. <laughs> that's, not, that's not what I was thinking. I was just thinking, how explicitly can I imply that Luke Akehurst is probably maladjusted? Um, but I don't know. I don't know enough about him, but that's a pretty maladjusted tweet. Um, thank you, everyone, for tuning in tomorrow. I'll be back again for another live show from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.